Hi all and welcome to the fifth episode of Awake In. It was recorded in a London park thanks to the COVID lockdown of 2020. If you're listening in the future, well done, you survived. If you're listening now in 2020, I hope that this strange pandemic world is treating you okay. Do get in touch and let us know what you think of the episode. We'd love to hear from you. All the best. Jasmine is messaging me. Yeah, is she coming? I wasn't sure whether... No, she can't make it. Okay. Um, we... Uh, you know what, I'll put her on the blower. On the what? The blower. Dog and bone. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Sorry, got me right with slack. <laughs> no, I'm like, what? <laughs> Jazz. Hi, Will. Hi, Jazz. Liam here. We're just about to start. Oh, you're both there? Yeah, we're in the park. Well, first of all, we have to intro you. Sure. So, hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome Liam to the show. Liam Chai. Yeah, Chai. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, let's hear from Liam about himself. <laughs> um, Who are you, Liam? <laughs> hey, well, yeah, I'm Liam. Uh, I turned 27 this year. <laughs> I, um, Spring chicken. Yeah, I, I grew up in Singapore, um, but around 11 came to, to London. Um, so I've been in London most of my life now. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess I've, I, I, I never went to university. I, um, I, I feel like, yeah, since probably like 17, 18, I've been kind of going very off script, so to speak. So, um, maybe we can start from there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So just some background, like I, I met Liam through our mutual friend, Jasmine, mm. and, uh, we, we hung out before one of the Awaken Circle, no relation to Awaken events. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here in London, uh, which is, uh, uh, actually it's a global thing. Look them up on the website. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, a, a really nice thing, I think, where yeah. people just hang out at people's homes and meditate together, eat some food, have a chat. And um, yeah, good vibes. So we met just before that and we spoke for about an hour in a pub and it was, it was hilarious. Um, we spoke about Vipassana meditation and like the kind of Goenka scene, let's not call it a cult. And yeah, <laughs> had, had a really a really fun chat and a good evening. So uh, I've been dying to get on back on ever since. He went to India, and he's back in London. And so here we are. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. go on and take it from there. That was a great jumping off point. Sing <laughs> sure. Singapore, <laughs> off script. Yeah, off script. Singapore. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, when I was like fifteen, sixteen. I, I guess kind of before sixteen, I, I was quite typical. Asian kid, so to speak. Um, you know, like I have many cousins and relatives who are doctors, accountants, uh, lawyers. And yeah, and I just thought, well, I'll be one of those, you know? So I was like, okay, well, doctor sounds cool. So I was kind of prepping to study medicine at uni and was doing like, you know, shadowing a nurse in a clinic yeah. and going to GPs and things. Um, yeah, and then I, I think, yeah, I don't remember exactly which book was first, but I, I started reading quite a few books and one of them was like, you know, some of, of these uh, new age spiritual books. So like Eckhart Tolle and my dad had like a copy of the Tao Te Ching on the bookshelf. And 
I picked those up and um, yeah, and I, I also because I was getting, you know, like the government at that time they were they were giving um, sixth form students like thirty pounds of yeah. EMA money. It was called uh, a week to just kind of help with like travel with textbooks okay. and things like that. Um, and I was pretty, and you know, I'm still pretty frugal, and I wasn't sure what to spend that money on, and. Um, I basically went on. I, I I ended up buying books, so I just started buying all of these like biographies of people, and and I think that just kind of gave me inspiration. That um, we're in the park, guys. So yeah, just for <laughs> yeah, context, they're going past now. Lockdown London. We're we're interviewing outdoors in the park, just to be safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I just bought these books and I started reading them. So like, Malcolm X, um, Einstein, just. I guess kind of like some typical sort of influential people on, on earth and, and just started reading their biographies and and I think from there it kind of started opening up different worlds for me um, yeah just rabbit holes I like to say really that I've just kind of kept on going down since then I think I think it's been a good thing so far so when we last <laughs> spoke I, I heard about how Liam had done some pretty extreme meditation stuff or to me it sounded pretty extreme anyway uh -huh. um so what was your first step in that direction how did you what were your first experiences with meditation mm. um so i probably my first meditation i think was around 16 or maybe 17 it was definitely related to the eckhart toll book that i read power of now um and then, you know, maybe I was just kind of trying it once a week or something like that, really casual. Um, but then around 18, you know, like at that age, you know, a few of my friends were kind of experimenting with psychedelics and, you know, they had you know, started exploring that world. And, um, and I remember one question that popped up for me was whether, whether the medita meditative state was the same as these highs that people were experiencing. Mm, mm, um, mm, mm. And that question really was quite, I, I, it really kind of stuck with me, I think. Um, and yeah, and, and that was kind of when I, I think I started meditating a bit more, just wanting to kind of see whether that question was answerable. Mm, um, mm, mm. And I think kind of like now in hindsight, it feels really fitting with this whole, especially within like Buddhism, this, this whole sort of, um, looking with your own direct experience you know mm. so it's not like you're trying to find these studies on this question or you know you have a question you're not trying to find studies trying to find the answers to the question you're just you're holding this question and you're trying to find a direct experience in your own experience about whether it's true or not mm. um mm. And that really resonated for sure mm, mm, mm. um and then when i was i think 20 or 21 i then yeah I, the first retreat i did was the vipassana guenka ones so 10-day silent retreats. Um, and I, I only went on that because, it, I mean, they were basically free. Yeah. So I was like 20, you know, I, very poor. And, yeah. and I was like, okay, yeah, let's try this. This sounds like yeah. a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, that was a, that was a, yeah, I, I, yeah I'd say yeah. several thousand years old. And yeah. People have definitely experienced this before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was insightful, I would say. Yeah, yeah, wow. It's such a like, um, for, for, for anyone who hasn't come across this stuff, look up the arising and passing. Because to me, to me it, at least, it just sounds such a classic, arising and passing. And it's really funny listening to people <coughs> describing like this kind of experience. They're, they're not 
there's so many different types of them, you know? Yeah. But every time I hear them, I'm just like, oh yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> arising and passing. <laughs> there, was, there was a great interview I listened to recently with some Zen teacher, British guy who lives in New Mexico or something now. Um, and he got into the Zen tradition, which kind of, it has this kind of thing. They've got their own names for it in Zen. Mm. Yeah. But they don't go into the sort of detail that someone like Daniel Ingram has or <clears throat> maybe the old Theravadan Buddhists, you know. And it's so funny listening to the guy talking about his experiences like this. He had, I think he had some before he'd got into any kind of meditation, you know. He was like a just a teenager, just staring at, you know, a sunset. Or it, No, it was, it was, he was like 22 or something and sitting on a beach. He had just finished his first book. He was very young and he just like, had this great sense of relief. Uh-huh. Just relaxing. And then, and then whilst looking at the, the, the light on the water, he just had this like, everything just gone kind of, you know, he, he, right. the way he described it was like emptiness. Uh, you know, the, the yeah. kind of, cause he was using Zen language, basically the, this thing that there is no solidity. Mm. to any of it mm. and, and it just and he's just like yeah and I had no way to explain it and then of course he, he had a classic like Dark Knight for a, a decade you know like <laughs> yeah. the whole life fell apart didn't know what was going on trying to figure it out eventually he finds some stability and he gets into Zen and he's like oh they understand me you know when I talk to people in this tradition about that stuff they go oh yeah yeah I know I know yeah, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I love that. So, it, I mean, I, I love that there's some sort of framework that, that to think about these things in, as yeah. potentially anyway. I mean, because to, to, the experience you described there is exactly the same kind of thing I had on, on Goenka retreats a yeah, couple yeah. of times as well. You know, it wasn't explicitly sexual in a particular one that I had in a meditation hall, but it was kind of the same thing, you know, it, yeah. there's just the, the whole solidity dissolving, everything turning mm. into like motes of energy rushing through the body. And I, I had a, an, another one that was um, kind of in, in a, you know, pre-dawn meditation in a cell. Pre-dawn? You know, oh, okay, b- you mean bef- timeless. Yeah, yeah, before before breakfast and all that. Sure. And, and the, the spine, I just remember it being like constellations of stars yeah in the darkness just turning and just like what the flying fuck is this <laughs> you yeah. know and you step yeah, out yeah. and the entire world is different it, yeah. that so i'll shut up get no, what, I, what happened after that <laughs> when, uh, no i i think i mean i think the more i you know because these the experiences like that i had no references for yeah, in a way yeah. before the experience but I think there. I don't know how whether anyone's done any studies on how common they are, but mm, mm. I I feel like they're they're pretty common. Mm. Uh, you know, like the more I kind of share about it, and then like coming across you and just meeting other people who've had similar experiences, um, I think it can be one of those like what do they call it? Like conspiracies of silence, right? Where yeah, it's such a personal, intimate, intense experience that yeah. few people want to kind of speak about it openly. Um, yeah, that everyone thinks oh no no that's only happened to me or like it's such a rare thing um yeah and so yeah it's cool that it's 
you know, just having these convers this conversation now and then, you know, it'll be kind of also shared publicly. Um, yeah. I think it just, especially as meditation becomes, you know, it has been becoming so popular in the West. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just kind of globally, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So after, the, after that experience, um, you know, it kind of basically lasted till the end of the retreat. Yeah. Not as intense as that first hour, yeah. but, you know, just very blissful still. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, and I, I sort of, so I went back home and then, Basically, I signed up again. <laughs> so that classic sort of uh, craving for yeah, yeah. Uh, that, I'll do that again to, to continue. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they actually said, "No, you can't sit back to back courses." Yeah. So I said, "Well, how can I get back to that retreat center?" And they said, "Well, you can serve." Right. Uh, so I, I did. So I went back. I think they have a course every ten days, basically, or maybe it's like five days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, within like a week, I was basically back at that same retreat center. Um, but this time I was volunteering. Um, mm, mm. And yeah, and actually, I mean, that even that, uh, those 10 days, because uh, you have, so yeah, nine days was kind of volunteering and then they gave you one day to just sit. Um, and then still, even on that one day, it was still very, um, you know, I, I just remembered going into the, like there's just, yeah, so many of these weird experiences that happen, but I remember walking into the uh, dining hall and I could just feel like my, you know, the middle of my forehead just tingling, like buzzing like crazy. Yeah. Um, and like lights just looked, I don't know, just like really like halographic. I don't even know if yeah. that's a word, yeah. right? but like yeah. people and things just had this sort of like aura about them. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. I was actually seeing auras, but it just felt like that. And I, I could just feel this like, zinging in the middle of my forehead like yeah like a sort of a pleasurable zinging but yeah um just yeah not yeah it's just bizarre but um very interesting yeah and wild wild stuff yeah. yeah um yeah so then after that i i basically went to the retreats quite often maybe i was doing one every three or four months mm. um on my second full course uh yeah you know at that point it was kind of like I felt well. I wouldn't say it was a crash, crash, but I definitely didn't get that same peak experience that yeah, I had yeah. before in that first retreat. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know whether you know, because I, I definitely had a good year where I was trying to chase that feeling again. Yeah, and it never came back. Yeah, but in some ways, after I started to drop that chasing. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like it's something that feels quite accessible. Um, yeah, like m maybe within like the last two years. So, mm. so that experience was, that first experience was maybe a good seven, seven years ago <clears throat> now. Yeah. And so within the last two years, I, I feel like I've, yeah, I, I've kind of stopped chasing that experience, but as a result, that experience is kind of a bit more common in mm. a way. Mm, 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 I, yeah, I don't know if that sort of makes sense. It's this sort of weird, yeah, very zen, I guess, right? It's like, you don't chase it until it'll, it'll yeah, come to you. Yeah, there it is, yeah. Um, yeah. But it makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, experientially, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And it, when did you come across the sort of Daniel Ingram interpretation of this stuff? Uh, I, I've, never, I've not actually read his book. Right. Um, I've read maybe the first two chapters, I think. Right, okay. Um, 
And I've read a few like Dharma Overground yeah, forum yeah. posts. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, but his work, I like. You know, you 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 mentioned him when we first yeah, talked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have like one other friend who was quite interested in right in his work. So you know, I, I've heard him quite a bit, but I've yeah. never actually sort of studied him in depth. Um, so in that in that time frame, then did you have any other way to sort of understand what had happened? that first retreat and yeah um so the the first things i i came across was was those Taoist things but that that was kind of a bit sparse still the knowledge around that um and then eventually i came across this um tibetan buddhist translator um Mm. alan wallace and Mm. he's i I would say he's my main sort of uh teacher nowadays yeah um and uh, he he's got a book called the the attention revolution mm. um and he talks a lot about the shamatha practices and, mm. and from my understanding so there are like these um nine stages to shamatha mm. and i think they correspond with the is it the 18 uh 18 stages of insight of the arising and passing or something like right, that so right. the first nine correspond to the shamatha stages that oh, yeah. Yeah, alan yeah. wallace is talking about yeah yeah um so that that was quite a good, um, yeah. That that was quite a good framework for me for for a while, and, and nice. still is. Yeah. Um, do they do they correspond to jhanic states at all? Is it that sort of thing? He's, yeah, yeah, sort of. He he's got quite a, I think quite a, probably within like especially within like Dharma Overground. I think yeah. he's got quite. They might even call him like an extremist. Right. You know, like in terms of how he might assess uh like the jhana states and oh he's like one that. of those that yeah you've got to be up six nights and straight and <laughs> essentially yeah so his um <laughs> you know like he'll say like okay if you're in like the fourth jhana yeah uh what was it was like two weeks you can you don't have to breathe for two weeks <laughs> basically right and like, like and, and I, i'm pretty sure like and he you know it's not his opinion like these are actually what he's kind of I guess like finding from the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Found. That's what those particular um, texts. But some people yeah. are like, well, that's obviously impossible, or whatever, right? right they have right, these right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. reactions to that, which yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I, and I don't know. You know, I, I really don't know. I think one of the things that I find quite interesting about, say, like for example, Tibetan Buddhism mm. is, you know, like a few weeks ago there was um, I can't remember his name, but uh, some some Lama who died, um, mm-hmm. and he. You know, he 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 hung he hung out for like three weeks or something in what they call Tukdam. Oh yeah, um, where you know he's he's dead, clinically dead, mm. um, but his body doesn't decompose. Yeah, for you know a good it was like three weeks and like his skin they said was like still warm to the touch. He he kind of felt like he was still alive. There was mm. still some presence about him. Mm. Um, and what I find super interesting is that the Dalai Lama is really open to working with people like Richard Davison to actually study these yeah. phenomena scientifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and because it's such a, it's so sort of obvious, you know, like, okay, he's like clinically dead. We can like show that with these numbers, like, okay, you know, there isn't a pulse or whatever. There's no whatever. And, but yet he's still displaying uh, these other signs. Mm. Um, mm. And so like that, that I find really interesting. And then when, you know, if that's possible, then, okay, maybe two weeks not breathing, maybe that's possible, right? It's not like it's it, that sort of right. far-fetchedness becomes a bit less um, far-fetched. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, um, it's interesting that. So I read the uh, Lee Brassington book. Oh yeah, on jhanas. I've heard that name. Yeah. Um, for, for anyone listening who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, um, jhanas are like meditation states, concentration states. English language is not very good at translating those sort yeah. of words. That's a rough approximation. Um, and Brassington's got this sort of take on it that actually, no, look, the, the original, you know, the Theravadan, the suttas say that it's this thing. And then later on, this other thing was, was invented that was called jhana right. um, in, in the, the later texts, basically. And the later texts, you, you might as well be Superman and, you know, walk through mountains and stuff. It's right, kind of yeah. like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, by the second jhana, you can levitate, move houses with your thoughts. And, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, they're, they're quite extreme. Yeah. Whereas the old, the, the Theravadan ones are like just quite sort of practical in yeah. his opinion. Sort of most people can achieve something of them in a 10-day retreat. And yeah. um, also interesting little thing in the old suttas, whenever they say meditate, they say, let's jhana, basically. Right, let's jhana. It's, it's, it's like jhana yana or something, means, which means, you know, it's the verb of jhana. Yeah. And, and that's what Buddha says, okay, bhikkhus, let's do this now. Let's jhana. I like yeah. that. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's jhana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny. Because that, that's, that's my thing still at the moment. That's what I'm exploring, basically, at a really low level, um, yeah. just in, in my daily practice. Yeah. Okay, so you got to tell us tell us about your this this guy. I forget his name now. Your your uh, Alan Wallace. Alan Wallace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How you, how did you meet him, and what's that all about? Oh, how did I meet him? I think it was a Buddhist Geeks podcast. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He had um, a podcast called uh, PhD in Contemplative Science. Okay. Uh, and I re- I really like the sound of that. Yeah. Because it was like. Yeah, it was like sort of, uh, yeah, oh yeah, okay. He was kind of equivalent, he was equating, so he was saying in the West, people are trying to bring that monastic model yeah. to the West, you know, yeah. the monastic model that's kind of deeply historical in the East and yeah. has a lot of culture behind it. Yeah. Um, and trying to take that and just like sort of drop it in the West. So you yeah. have like, you know, like, you know, like you have these like white guys basically ordaining as monks and, um, and maybe it can work. Mm. But he was saying, what might be better a better fit is if we take what we have in the West, which is the the sort of university system. So you've got this undergraduate, master's, PhD. And if you take that and you apply it but to contemplative science. So you you under so a monastic sort of training in the East mm. is kind of like that. It's like doing, mm. you know, a really rigorous uh academic but also sort of, you know, with that sitting practice as well, included with it. And so he was saying, what if we use that as a way to um, train contemplatives, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I, yeah, I really liked. And, you know, part of something like that, where you might do an undergraduate in meditation or master's in meditation and PhD in meditation mm, mm, mm. would involve, yeah, a lot of uh, sitting practice. Mm. But then maybe you might also have a lot of, um, like, sort of uh, self-report or yeah. kind of exp- writing down your experience and then trying to maybe like uh, the word he used was intersubjective corroboration mm. so you would have other people engaging in these contemplative PhDs mm, and mm, mm. 
you would basically say, oh, you know, I had, I was doing this, 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 and I was experiencing this. And then you, I might ask you, Bill, did you have th that same experience when mm. you did this? And what was the different conditions that affected that? Mm, mm, mm. And when, you know, when you reach a certain level of practice, you know, like the attention does stabilize and you can make these sort of consistent and reliable um, reports, basically, yeah. um, that you could actually sort of start to uh, collaborate with people and say, okay, yeah, actually, I think there's, there's actually something here that we can go to regularly and, and consistently. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, you know, that was kind of the vision he had for, nice. for nice. that sort of contemplative science. Um, and um, yeah, so that was where I'm, I, I, that was how I first found him. And then I, I like this style. So I, I just ended up, you know, he has all these podcasts on online, and so I was listening to a bunch of his podcasts. Yeah. And then I then I looked up his uh, itinerary, and he was going to be in in Scotland uh, within like three or four months. So right. I I booked a retreat with him basically. Yeah. That, that was where I met him. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah up in Samyang Ling. Cool. And and how did that like reframe your practice? Well, I. So at that time, you know, I, I had still been going to these Goenka retreats mm. and, you know, meditating a lot, basically. Um, and I was also meditating a lot, you know, on, on my own uh, at home. But I, I felt like there was a bit of a ceiling in a way with the Goenka practice. Mm. Not, not the practice, but the sort of access to information and access to knowledge. Mm. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess I was kind of wanting a bit more theory maybe mm. um mm. and i yeah i actually and yeah and i think there were certain things so like i also did like the eight day satipatthana yeah. retreat that yeah. Gwenka offers and there were just certain things that i was a bit confused by when you know there was this these four applications of mindfulness you know the body feeling uh mind and all phenomena all dharmas mm. Mm. and and Goenka just, he's always coming back to just the sensations and he never talks about the mind aspect or the all, like all phenomena aspect. Like, yeah. And, and I just thought, okay, well, I guess maybe that's skillful because we're still very early on or, you know, I, I yeah, I wasn't sure whether he was ever going to come to that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I was kind of seeking another teacher to, who could maybe start to explore that a bit yeah. more for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. At least theoretically. Which yeah, which Alan Wallace did. Yeah. Um, yeah, he actually spent I think six months with Goenka, practicing oh, yeah. with him as well. So. Ah. Yeah. That rings a bell. Yeah. Um, I read a a book recently with another guy who he kind of was there actually maybe a bit before. No, he he practiced with Goenka when Goenka was still a student, basically. Uh -huh. This guy Coleman, um, who was a spy. He was an American CIA agent okay. in the Far East when he got into Buddhism and, and uh -huh. trying to sort of um, find some sort of path to peace. It's, good, it's a good little story. And he practiced with Goenka in the early days. Did you hear... So we spoke to Daniel Ingram uh -huh. um, uh, a couple of months ago now. Did, did you get a chance to listen to that? Not all of it, no. Okay. <laughs> There's a good little bit in there about uh -huh. Goenka because... The story that Ingram heard anyway was that it, in 
Goenka's practice, he was given a very particular thing. Was was it Ubarkin who taught him? Yeah, Ubarkin. Yeah, yeah. He was given like Ubarkin had decided that you know, this was the right sort of practice for him, and he was giving different one to each of his students. Right. And <clears throat> it worked for Goenka. He he like had great results from, from doing this sort of body scan stuff. So he's like, okay, that'll do. And and that's why he's then gone into yeah, I see. kind of teach for everyone. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, because I, I think the Buddha does say, like just something with mindfulness of breathing can bring you to our hardship, right? I think he says something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's not to downplay the practice at all. It's yeah. just, yeah. I think for me, I was sort of wanting a bit more, but the, yeah, I guess the big picture context. Yeah. Um, especially as, you know, Buddhism was quite, this kind of very new thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And then and then that well, how did you get onto so the the, the another of the topics last time me and Liam spoke was that Liam had done a year long retreat. No, not year. It wasn't six, a year. It was six months. Six months, okay. Yeah. <laughs> done a six month retreat solo uh-huh. in in some small town in Portugal. Spain, yeah. Spain, right, yeah. yeah. Small village of like yeah. 50 people. Small village. <laughs> it's so hilarious. Um, <laughs> so how did you get onto that? What, what led you there? Um, yeah, so that was mainly influenced by Alan Wallace, I think, and, and the way he was presenting the, the teachings. Um, yeah, you know, he was, and, and that's also one of the reasons why people call him an extremist in a way. Um, because, you know, he, he basically says, like, to even, for something like the first jhana, if you even want any hope of achieving it, you have to really be in full time practice. And, you know, you have to really be putting in like 12 hour days, 16 hour days practicing, mm, because mm, otherwise mm, your mm. mind is just not going to settle um, enough to actually. Uh, you know, achieve the full jhana is what he would he would call it. Mm, um, mm, mm. You might have experiences of it, but to actually fully achieve it um, won't be possible unless you're in full time retreat. Yeah. And I, I, you know, at that time, I, I kind of really took it to heart. And and I mean, that was only I came out of retreat June 2019, so that was only about just over a year ago now. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm like 25 at that time, and I was like, what? Let me try. You know, like, I, yeah, let me put in like. Let's try six more because before that I had done a two-month retreat and before that I had done a two-week retreat, both of them solitaries. Mm. So I was kind of working my way upwards Mm. and I thought, you know, I I might as well just give it a shot while I don't have, I'm not married, I don't have kids. I've got, you know, I've got this free time and I'm, you know, it just felt like the most opportune moment to give this a shot. You know, like is what, you know, is that whole, coming back to that whole direct experience thing, um, I can kind of, try to follow all these endless debates on Dharma Overground and people can say like, yeah, this is not going to, this is too much or this is not enough or, you know, this says, this person says this, but that person says this. And I'm like, okay, well, I just got to try, you know, I got to see for myself whether this is something that's possible or not. Um, And so that was kind of the intention. It was kind of this deep sort of curiosity um, and conditions aligning as well. Yeah. You know, so like this cabin in Spain was offered to me basically. Yeah rent free yeah and you know initially the woman said well maybe you can contribute to the electricity yeah but then 
she she basically no I'll, I'll cover the electricity as well don't worry Amazing. about it <laughs> yeah um, and yeah and so that that's you know like it just felt like okay these conditions are coming together I'll, I would be a fool to not try and yeah. do this now um, so that that was why I I kind of did it um, so yeah it was in Burgos in Spain which is like three hours north of Madrid yeah yeah uh, I have some funny stories with that, but <laughs> like, you know, one is, so it's just this like small cabin yeah. in this village of like 50 people, mainly elderly people. Yeah. Um, and they don't really speak English there. It's in the middle of, you know, I'm not really anywhere. Um, and suddenly there's this, you know, there's this young sort of Chinese kid who's come into their village. <laughs> <laughs> and he wants to spend six months in this cabin with this sort of vow of silence, right? And uh, <laughs> he's just going to meditate every day. <laughs> um, and so like, yeah, so the first month I, I remembered, um, you know, nobody locks their doors in this yeah. village. So I, I also didn't lock my door. And the first month I, I, I begun this retreat um, and I, I have, um, so I, I had this like little piece of paper in Spanish saying like, yeah, um, I'm in silence. Uh, so, cause you know, I would go for walks sometimes around the countryside. And if I bumped into someone, I would just kind of give them this note if they tried to speak to me. Cause yeah. you know, like people are very friendly in these yeah. small towns. Um, and I remember the first month, uh, I, you know, I'd be meditating and occasionally someone would just like hear about me, you know, cause like, they have like so there's a 50 people in the village and they have like friends from the cities and they yeah, come yeah. and visit for the weekend and they're like oh hey did you know that this this new uh there's this new kid and like <laughs> meditating and he's silent and <laughs> and so like occasionally i just get these visitors come through and they would just open the door because it was unlocked yeah and they come in and i remember one like coming in and he would do this uh the anjali to me and he said like namaste <laughs> and then just walk out <laughs> and leave. And there'd just be these things that would happen that yeah you just kind of realize oh yeah you're you know you're in spain you're doing something actually very out of the ordinary yeah um yeah but you know i i enjoyed the the intention i guess it was quite fun um, bunkers yeah I, ha I had these lovely three aunties who were like basically my neighbors yeah and every week they would come by with like some tortilla or some warm soup or some food basically that amazing. they literally offered to me uh and it was yeah it was amazing actually it was really yeah. really yeah. a sweet gesture wild um, so how did how did that retreat go i mean wh wh where did you get to with <laughs> what, what did to. it feel you know <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a long time to meditate for yeah 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 um yeah so the the three practices that alan teaches are um so there's the the mindfulness of breathing you know very similar to the guenka practices mm. but he also talks about two other practices um so one called uh settling the mind in its natural state Mm. Um, and that's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of more on the mind focus part. So it's, mm. you, you take, you basically take the mind and the space of the mind as mm. the object of meditation. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and then the last practice is one he calls, um, uh, awareness of awareness, which for some people can be quite, sounds quite abstract, I guess. Um, but 
it's a very, very simple practice, that last one. And those were kind of the three practices I went in, you know, mainly practicing. Mm. Um, and then occasionally I would have, you know, some of the, uh, what, what Alan calls the four immeasurables. So the, like the metta, the loving kindness, the compassion, empathetic joy and yeah. sort of equanimity practices. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know whether I should go into each of those practices, but um, that kind of made up the bulk of my day mm -hmm. doing those practices. Um, so I, I would have sort of individual sessions um, beginning. So because I had already, this six month retreat was kind of like a continuation of my previous two month retreat even though there was a gap in between. Mm. Um, but like on that one, I had started with, you know, I, I started with like, I think it was 21 minute sessions. Um, and you just do, and I just did as many 21 minute sessions as I could throughout the day. Um, and then as I, basically as my attention refined and improved, I would increase the session by, you know, a few minutes each time. And so, yeah. So like with this, six month one I you know I, I was you know by the end of it I was sitting three hour sessions maybe sometimes four hour sessions um, and just sort of continuing the practice um, mm. it, 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 essentially this so shamatha that Alan talks about which is equivalent to so would be equivalent to this sort of more technical part but equivalent to the access to the first jhana so it, it wouldn't even be considered the first jhana according to him and from you know from what i understood it, it it's basically this it's like falling asleep but being completely aware mm. without losing consciousness mm. so you know when you fall asleep you don't have any awareness of the room that you're in mm. um that whole sort of this um you know what buddhism calls this desire realm essentially mm. dissolves into um what alan translates as the substrate consciousness um, and so that entire desire realm kind of collapses and dissolves into that substrate consciousness. And what you're left with is just this pure, uh, just consciousness, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then what the first jhana is, is a, what's the word for that, that they use? A form realm. So they call it a form realm. And then there are these, uh, uh, the formless jhanas that they call and that's in the formless realm so there, there are these sort of essentially sort of different realms that you can kind of you you in a way enter mm. um and so that sort of dissolving the desire realm was kind of what the point of the shamatha was um and yeah and and i you know my, my understanding of that was you would kind of dissolve that desire realm and then at that point uh, you would then apply some of these vipassana practices to really cut through um, some of these sort of core, what they might call like core afflictions or mm. core um, obscurations, you know, of mm. like this sort of, you know, that ignorance that Buddha says is the cause of suffering. Mm. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's pretty deep work. Um, and I, you know, some of it might sound a bit weird, but I, I think from all of that meditating, I, I, I feel like he's not chatting shit. You know, what Alan is kind of saying, you know, I think these, these realms are, maybe realm is not the best word for it, but they're definitely, you know, like, like I guess a dream you could say is a dream realm. Yeah. And so those things definitely exist, but 
here you have these sort of meditative states that are very yeah very similar to what you might how you might access a dream yeah um so yeah yeah it's interesting it, it's such a contrast to brassington's right. impression of, of jhana you know it's, it's like yeah they're almost completely separate categories of of thing altogether the, the way that he talks about them i mean it's essentially like in 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 that kind of the, the way that Brassington at least translates this the original Theravadan jhanas, first jhana is basically kind of like, um, you know, when you when you kind of when someone first is able to meditate, basically, and right. they're like, oh wow, I can stay concentrated, and I'm not like completely, I'm not, you know, completely just tripping out on thinking about my job and life and you know whatever. I can actually meditate and I'm concentrating on one thing yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for extended periods. It's first jhana. You know, it's very, very basic in comparison to this, this other, I forget what they call them, but the, the Tibetan interpretation or whatever, yeah. this sort of later interpretation. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it wasn't like I was, because like on a practical level, those kinds of descriptions were like, they weren't really useful for my own everyday practice. And yeah. So, which, you know, Alan has like these earlier stages before the shamatha, so yeah. the nine stages to shamatha, where right. he describes similar right. things about okay, you know, on stage two, this is, you you know, like for you can have your attention on on your object for a minute, but then the attention okay. goes away. Okay, yeah. So yeah. it is very practical at that level. Right. They just maybe use different names for the same thing, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's I mean, thousands of years of you know, people yeah. misinterpreting things in, in books and making up new things and, you know, like yeah. coining, coining new terms. It's a wild, it's a wild old history. I mean, I've, I've, I don't know what it is that I'm currently going through in meditations, but what I've been doing is um, a lot of kind of using a light to focus, kind of... Um, An like, external light. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, so... Um, kind of following Ingram's fire casino guidelines oh, yeah. sort of thing. So I focus on the light um, whilst counting, say, eight breath cycles just as, as, they, as they come. And then I'll close my eyes and do the same whilst looking at the after image. And usually within like half an hour of that, there's a shift into a different state of consciousness. And I don't know what you'd call it. But it's definitely different. It's like, mm. <laughs> it's not at all like, it, it reminds me mostly of, of things that would happen fairly deep in a, in a retreat. Mm. Uh, and I don't know what, what it is, you know, it might be first or second jhana in the Brassington, like this description of them. And then there's sort of shifts happen after that into other stages and each one, it feels like there's less, um, I'm doing less. It's like you're able to let go of more um, like subroutines. You know, if your brain was a computer doing right. routines, it's like you can just let some of them go and go, ah, that's a relief. Right, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's kind of my daily practice on a good day yeah. recently. And, um, and it, it, it feels like a subset of stuff that I've been through on going to retreats. And I'm just kind of... I keep on exploring it because it's really interesting. 
getting some control over it and, and learning to switch between these different states, mm. whatever they are, you know, they, they do look like Brassington's description of first, third, first, second, third, fourth jhana mm. in his book, that the way he's de- he describes them, that there's these things that happen. And by the time you get to fourth in, in that book, it's like there's almost nothing going on mentally. Yeah. Like there's, there's no inner voice. Hmm. barely any inner voice and and all the senses kind of merge a little bit in a really interesting way I don't know if you've had anything similar where it's kind of like sound suddenly gets like really like really intense but also it kind of feels like a kind of it's it's a mix with vision and feeling as well and that kind of thing it's like almost Hmm. synesthetic Um, I'd have you had any have you experienced similar things I, I don't know so much about synesthesia is that what the word yeah, is yeah yeah um, but for sure with um, yeah with that sort of super quiet mind and, and thoughts um, mm, mm, mm. you know like I yeah I, I get these experiences quite frequently where you can have like the thoughts like where you might just get like a half thought, but it doesn't yeah. fully become yeah. a thought, but it just vanishes before yeah, yeah, it even yeah, yeah, takes yeah. form, right? Um, and there's just this real quietness, like a big, yeah, like a big blue sky, yeah. essentially. Yeah. You know, very spacious. I remember someone describing it like, it's like thoughts, you sort of see the substrate. Right. It, it's like you're kind of surfing above this, this ocean where they come from. <laughs> and some of them sort of you know they sort of pop up like flying fish for a half second and then yeah. you know but they didn't really fully form yeah. and they definitely didn't take over your whole fucking mind like yeah. they can when you're not in that state you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah 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 it's, it's a it's a rare and wonderful thing I mean I I kind of I question my attachment to meditation as well mm. And I'm trying to understand like how it fits into the rest of my life a bit better as well. Cause I, I really value it. I get so much out of it. I get, I, I, I lose so much stress every time I sit, mm. but I'm also wary of getting so attached to it as well. Do you know what I mean? Cause it, it's like, there's so much more to life as well mm. than, you know, pretend to be a fucking monk or something. Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're here for such a short time as as humans. Like, what are we? You know, what what are the best things we can do? <laughs> it's like that kind of question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Have you? I think I asked when we were in a pub. But have you come across like Shinzen Young's work? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got this lovely phrase on uh, maximum meditation mileage or something like that. Yeah. MMM, he calls it, right? Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, yeah, and I think, you know, that is the point of the meditation, right? It's not like the sitting still doing nothing. Yeah. It's kind of to help with the mindfulness 24-7. Yeah, yeah. Right, so that yeah. when you are just living your normal life, you can just have that extra sort of refined attention. And um, I think one, one thing Shinzen talks about is this, you know, like with mindfulness, you can't, you might not necessarily like live longer, but each moment, your your sort of ability to experience each moment becomes much more, right? Mm, so mm, whereas mm. in the past, before meditation, you might have gone like an hour just lost in thought or 
you know, completely distracted by something. And, and mm. in a way, that's kind of this sort of zombie state, right? Where you're not necessarily living. Yeah. But then when you've, you bring this meditative state to everything, then it's like you can 10 times your lifespan without actually living longer, right? Because you just have this more, you just have more experience per minute, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a nice way to look at it as well. I mean, I, I guess what I'm, I'm struggling with a bit is, is how, um, well, how to sort things out in lots of areas of my life as well, you know, relationships and, and my marriage and, you know what I mean? Like the, there's, there's lots of things there that I know that just meditation is not the answer for. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. There's, more, there's more work that I have to do in these different aspects. I, I heard someone else talking about it as, as how, you know, we've got this tradition now from, from Buddhism, this, this Buddhist thing of waking up and and then there's these other things that that say have come out of perhaps 20th century psychology of of like what did they call it it was it was growing up i think and then uh -huh. and then cleaning up was another one hmm. and that we can you know you could become like quotes fully enlightened through some some meditative tradition but then how you know, these, all these kind of enlightened masters came over from India and Tibet and what have you to the West and just kind of made an incredible mess of, of their lives and other people's lives because they hadn't done the growing up and the cleaning up stuff. Right. They'd just done the waking up. And that's enough to make you feel invincible and, and, and you know, omniscient and... <laughs> <laughs> all the other good stuff but actually they caused just a wake of chaos and, right. and exploitation and all kinds of kind of bad stuff happened around them too yeah is, is that is that similar to that term spiritual bypassing or probably I'm not sure what that is yeah where like you know you kind of use spirituality as a way to bypass certain flaws in your or not maybe not flaws is the right word but unaddressed issues you know that yeah you yeah. don't maybe want to look at and you use spirituality as a way to cover that up yeah um, yeah yeah i mean that's a, yeah. such a classic i think that's a slightly different thing in that it's like just kind of what most religions do all the time right <laughs> <laughs> let's pray to whoever and you know solve all our problems and mm. meanwhile you just carry on with your life mm. as usual but um, yeah, I think it's definitely a thing that that um, it, it's, it's I don't know it's something that I'm thinking about a lot anyway in relation to, to meditation and perhaps it's something that that uh, these traditions need to address as they as they go global, right? And and you know interact with different societies around the world and become something else because that's i think that's what's happening now with with buddhism you know people talk, talk about a fourth turning mm, right um which it probably will look like in retrospect whatever happens over the next century or so if we're not all you know scrabbling for canned food in a radioactive wasteland <laughs> and <laughs> can actually look back <laughs> on this period it probably is something like that because mm. it you know it, it went through 
I, I don't know the, the details of all those, but three major turnings as it went from different mm. countries and time periods. Yeah. Um, it's, it's doing that now, like going global, I guess. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. I mean, that kind of makes it quite, um, quite turbulent sort of times, but also very exciting in a way. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I, yeah, there's a cool film I've been watching. It's called A Year of Living Mindfully. Um, oh. Is that with that? It's a woman, right? Yeah. She does, uh, yeah, yeah. does clinical studies on, on herself. On that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Self-experiments. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't finished watching it yet, but um, link in the show notes, folks. Um, that, that's really good and quite inspiring on the, on the like, because it, it's clear just on a sort of basic level, there are so many benefits to taking 20 minutes of it out of your day to contemplate your navel basically mm, and just yeah. like not not do more stuff to stop doing for yeah. a minute and remember that you know this this life this body this mind all this this thing here that, that you experience and I mean just even on a basic level if more people did that I think it would improve things I don't know how much it would improve things but I like to think more than more than a bit you know more <laughs> i don't know it's, yeah. it's a really interesting question if everyone did 20 minutes of meditation a day would the world be a better place probably would i think so yeah i, I don't know how much by i've heard people be very dismissive of that type of meditation but i actually think there's something in that i mean yeah i mean was it there's that nice quote now from was it Blaise Pascal or something? Oh yeah, he says something like, "All of man's problems comes from oh, his yeah. inability to sit still in an empty room or something like that." Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sit quietly in an empty room. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, there, there's definitely something about probably a lot of the suffering that we experience or the problems that we you know, the problems are actually sort of things that we perceive as problems, right? And they're, they're quite sort of, for, for a large part, imaginary in a way, you yeah, know? And, and, yeah. and if we can just have that time to sit still and just sit with it, that imagination can actually dissolve yeah, um, without yeah. necessarily doing anything in the sort of external world to try to resolve it. Yeah. Um, you know, not, not everything probably, but I think a lot of, things could just be yeah you know sort of let go of in a way if if we can i feel like it would shift culture a bit too because if everyone was doing that then it would be like there would be more people thinking about oh well where does this lead to mm. and what you know how can i go deeper with it and what will it what will happen if i do and you know if, if 10 percent of the human race was thinking along those lines mm that would be a much bigger cultural shift than just the everyone doing 20 minutes every day kind of thing, which I've, I, I, you know, I, I hear people be very dismissive of that kind, you know, the mindfulness explosion. Everyone's, oh yeah, everyone's like doing, you know, <laughs> headspace. Right, right. <laughs> 20 minutes a day and, and it's going to change the world, man. You know, and like, yeah, I, I kind of hope it does, you know. <laughs> I think it would be great if like, if yeah. it just like everyone was doing that and they might you know they might drink a little less and mm. you know maybe mm. punch their wife less and mm. you know <laughs> their kids right. and yeah 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 <laughs> who knows yeah. it it can 
you know, even even these these short like MBSR mindfulness based stress mm. reduction reduction courses do apparently change lives. There was there was one of the quotes in in the um, the movie Living Mindfully um, that it was like five times more effective than standard treatment for certain mm. things like you know trying to give up smoking and stuff like that. There's like crazy yeah. stuff comes out of it. Even some insurance company now is is it was it was like they're 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 taking it on as a recommendation for people with high blood pressure or something like that because right. the science supports it well enough now that if you do this thing, it will probably help with your your blood pressure enough mm. that an insurance company is taking notice. Mm. Right? There's <laughs> yeah. I mean, those kinds of things are are exciting. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I, I I spent like about a year teaching mindfulness to secondary school kids. Oh, amazing! Actually, um, yeah, yeah, we did speak about this briefly. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and I mean, by and large, most of the kids enjoyed it and 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 definitely got something out of it. You know, whether it's like, um, you know, there were just like simple observations that they might realize. Like, for example, when they were using their phones, they stopped breathing. Um, just. Insights like that can actually be super helpful, you know? Or like many of them talked about having like anxiety and so they can't sleep at night. And so now they might just put on like some headspace for like 10 minutes just before they go to bed and that helps them fall asleep. And yeah, I mean, for that kid, you know, that's a really, that's quite a big deal. Amazing, and then if you yeah. see that it's kind of spread out, yeah, you know, if like mindfulness becomes this, you know, part of the national curriculum or something like that, that has, yeah, for sure that has... That has an impact, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point, we went off on a bit of a detour, but I thought I'd leave you with the last few minutes because it might amuse you. You know, it's like, I, I guess, coming back to sort of Buddhism, right? It's like the nature of things. It's like, we, we will face these existential threats, right? Whether it's like a comet coming to whack us um, or other, you know, like, yeah, just other massive events and yeah, it just kind of feels like that's that's what life is almost about, right? Like on a sort of big scale. Yeah. Even the earth is impermanent. And yeah, yeah. Civilization is impermanent. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like to try and take a long view on these things. There's, um, there's a nice little thing I learned recently about uh, like deep history, prehistoric history is that you get very little evidence uh, in the fossil record. So for every thousand years or so, you get roughly one fossil. Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. That's quite a few. Which means that <laughs> for human civilization, we might find 10 fossils. It's 10,000 years roughly. So if, if, you know, we blow ourselves up tomorrow and like our future, like, cockroach overlords uh, digging around doing some archaeology they might find 10 fossils in this entire <laughs> period and, right. and might not actually know that there was ever a civilization that we built cities yeah. and went to the moon yeah well have you I, <laughs> that's a really that's a really interesting you say I didn't know that about the fossil like one fossil for every <laughs> thousand years but have you heard of like Graham Hancock I, I've not read much of him but no he talks a lot, spell, but what yeah he talks a lot about like ancient civilizations oh yeah 
of like you know like basically human beings who are right. like much more advanced than we are okay, today. Okay, okay, okay. And it's like, well, okay, if that you know what you just said that, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. well, wow, maybe we we just haven't found them because there's yeah. so few, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Maybe I mean, they were more advanced than us. It's well, I, I think it's quite unlikely that that particular story, but I do like the idea that dinosaurs probably, you know, built cities. Rockets, right? Went to the moon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they wiped each other out in a nuclear war or something. Right, right, right. right? Yeah, yeah. Because actually, it's quite possible, mm. and we wouldn't know. Right. And in fact, like, uh, there's so much time back there that it could have happened a few times. Right. 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 <laughs> With different dinosaur civilizations. <laughs> You know, I like that. We should title this podcast uh, <laughs> Dinosaur Civilizations. <laughs> there, so it's possible that one day we'll find, you know, a dinosaur flag on the moon. And not only that, but <laughs> we might find three of them. Right. <laughs> from different eras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still be, there. Yeah. And yeah. that's probably a good place to look too because it's less likely to have been demolished by the sands of time. Right. I'm not sure on that, but I'd love to... I have no idea. Anyone listening in knows how, how often the lunar surface gets wiped out by comets or whatever, then yeah, let, let, us let, know. let us know. In a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked it up yet. Yeah. But I just love the idea of the dinosaur flag. <laughs> like a, a claw on it or something. <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, god yeah yeah I could get behind that I think that's probably a good place to leave it and <laughs> cool yeah no it's been delightful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we covered so much yeah I think so uh, oh my well, god cool thank you yeah no thank you very much that such was, a pleasure uh, as, as ever yeah yeah that was very interesting <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Slightly awkward at times. <laughs> I haven't done this before much, as you can tell. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Awake In Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Check out the show notes, listen to more episodes, and find our socials at our site, awake-in.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so do please get in touch. <laughs>